Welcome to Spill the Tea, a bi-weekly download of life, liberty, and the latest in culture and news with your hosts, Dr. Robert McClure and Sal Nuzzo. Welcome to another episode of Spill the Tea. I am Sal Nuzzo, Vice President of Policy with JMI. With me is our President and CEO, Dr. Bob McClure. We have got a ton of stuff to go through. Lots to talk about. Yes, we do. All right, let's go right in. Elon Musk closes Mm -hmm. the deal on Twitter. Have you noticed anything different, good or bad, since he took over? I will say this. His um, humor... And his sarcasm on Twitter is hilarious. And um, welcome. Like, yeah. we all need a little bit of a release valve. Yeah, yeah. In this day and age, uh, the humorless society that the uh, that the left is trying to perpetuate to have Elon Musk online, I think, is a riot. Uh, the $8 uh, blue check, I think, is hilarious. Would you Would you pay for it? Yes, I'd pay for it. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a viable way because there was always this question of like what the criteria were. Right, right. And some people who I thought should get one never got one. Other people who had very limited followings got them. And so I think kind of creating a consistent policy in a way that allows people to be verified. Um, I do note, though, that one account that I follow, she had indicated that it should uh, come with a requirement that you cannot be anonymous. Right. Like, so you can't just can't be a bot. Yeah, can't be exactly. anonymous. Yeah, overseas or something like that. You know, he's he's coming in. He walked in his first day with the kitchen sink. Yep. Which I thought was hilarious. Yep. Um, and he plans to cut about half of his workforce. So that's 3,700 jobs. He completely cleaned out the executive suite. Uh, and so he's really looking to slash costs. Um, it's my understanding Twitter has never made a profit. And really? So, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so uh, it's one of those almost dot-com bubbles waiting to happen. So he's actually trying to move in that direction. Uh, and the majority of the employees who remain will be required to come back into the office. So he's really laying the hammer down. And, and I also think there's there's some thought that uh, he may continue to invest in a way that kind of allows him to take the company private as opposed to right. maintaining it on, uh, I think it's on NASDAQ or, right. or something. So. The idea of doing that would allow him the ability to make even more changes mm-hmm. or do some things that he otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, I think he's. I think it's great. I think it, you know he's opening it up. It's going to be more of a free market, which obviously we at the James Madison Institute believe in. Uh, even the eight bucks—that's part of yeah. the market, you yeah. know. Don't you can, like it? Build a different right, one. Right, yeah. right. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, I filled up my gas tank mm-hmm. on Halloween. Why? Because the gas tax holiday ended. Right. Uh, so we got prices at the pump up about twenty-five cents yeah. uh, higher. Uh, I will say though that even with that gas tax holiday, I did not see them drop below three dollars a mm-hmm. gallon. Uh, we're still in kind of incredibly high oil price territory, uh, largely a result of uh, the Biden administration and and a lot of other things that are going on that they just seem to be um, flat-footed in responding to. Right, right. I haven't seen below 319, 325, somewhere around there. Um, The reality is, is that, and and frankly, I didn't really feel the gas tax holiday. I didn't really notice it, but I'm sure uh, other people probably did. So we're grateful for any tax relief we can get. But the reality is that uh, this is a Biden administration-induced problem. 
if we were allowed to continue with the Keystone Pipeline, drill on federal lands, open up Alaskan leases, and reduce the regulatory environment for um, companies that drill, make widgets, you know, make the tools, truckers, all of that to get the 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 uh, gas to the pump, we would be back down to two plus dollars a gallon. We have so much natural gas, so much. Um, oil that uh, this this is a self-induced problem and it's the regulatory uh, decisions of the Biden administration 100 percent and, and and you know and then to to add insult to injury he has to go begging Saudi Arabia begging right. Venezuela for them to open up their pumps it just doesn't make any logical sense politically practically economically uh, from a national security standpoint we become uh, back to where we were beholden to uh, kind of the whims of uh, mm-hmm. countries' policies that don't agree with our our culture, our way of life. And like you said, when we have all of the capacity right in our own ground to make us energy independent, we were energy independent right. just three, four, five years ago. You know, I get this question all the time. Is this ineptitude on the part of the Biden administration or is this a an intentional effort? And I I read an article by Mark Penn, of all people, who was a Democratic strategist. Clinton's. Uh, Clinton's. Yeah. Uh, and then later um, worked with Hillary and yep. the Obama administration. And they were asked, you know, after uh, the bloodbath uh, of Clinton's midterm election in the 90s, he pivoted to the center. Yep. The era of big government is dead. And uh, Mark Penn, the Democratic strategist, was asked, do you think Biden will pivot after this you know, red wave, which we really think is coming as yep. we as we tape this. We're four or five days out from from the election, um, and he said an interesting thing. He said it depends on whether he replaces his staff or not. So to me, that says that the staff yeah, they're in charge is driving yeah. this left wing. Uh, constant barrage of policies. And that, I think, is a very telling comment from a Democratic strategist, it, that, it, that his, his staff within the White House are hard leftists, not necessarily good old-fashioned Democrats or left-of-center Democrats or whatever. These are hard leftists who are in his staff who are driving these policy decisions. And that was straight from the mouth of a Democratic strategist. And you mentioned the election. Let's just dive right into that. I think we could could spend a lot of time doing that. Let's start with Florida. Uh, We're in the Sunshine State. Mm -hmm. Uh, Four years ago, Ron DeSantis beat a a leftist challenger by about 34,000 votes out of 9 million casts, less than a half of a, per, of a percent. And it was an upset. Nobody really thought exactly. he was going to win. It is projected that he's going to win the state by double digits. Right. And if you think about the number of voters in the state, that could amount to a million vote victory in Florida uh, in a state that 
dates back 20 years of 1%, 2% victories. Um, A great article out of Florida politics recently about the prevalence of uh, those who are migrating into the state and their voter registrations. Uh, What's your thought there? You know, it's fascinating. Rick Scott, a Republican, won the governor's race twice by less than 1%. He won the U.S. Senate race by less than 1%. Barack Obama won the state of Florida twice by less than 1%. Then you move forward. Donald Trump, in his first race in 2016, won the won the state of Florida by less than 1%. It's like 100,000 votes yep. over Hillary. Move forward to 2020. He won it by 400,000 yep. votes. And now we're talking about perhaps nearly a million votes. Florida is no longer kind of the largest swing state in the country. It is moving red. And, it, and a lot of it has to do – there are multiple reasons why – One reason is the reason you just referenced from Florida Politics. Terrific article. If you haven't seen it, we uh, highly encourage you to go to... Renzo Downey is yes. the uh, is the author of it. Took a deep dive on my a deep dive on national uh, population migration statistics, and what it was showing is that of the folks that are migrating into the state when they register to vote, largely uh, they are. I think it's by a, a two and a half or maybe even almost three to one margin registering as Republicans. Why that's important is where they're coming from. Right. They're coming from New York, Illinois, Michigan, New Jersey. Connecticut, places you would think they have lots and lots of Democrats. Right. They're coming and they're recognizing what they're leaving. They're registering as Republican and they're voting red. Right. It's a it's it's a tremendous dive in and it actually juxtaposes it against other states and what their trends are. Uh, I think it was something like in California, there may be two Democrats registered for every one Republican. Right, right. So it's you know kind of almost the inverse. So you have this kind of voting with your feet uh, mentality going on in this process of this great sorting mm-hmm. that uh, I think as we kind of extrapolate this out to future election cycles, it's going to, and then you think about not just this reapportionment, but the next one, right. what's going to happen with that. Right. And here's and here's the second thing that I think is fascinating. We've been talking th- about this internally as a staff. For the first time, perhaps in your lifetime and mine, Miami-Dade County might, might Vote majority Republican in the county, largest county in the in the state, almost three million people, if if not right at or over three million people. That is a county uh, that is majority Hispanic that is going could potentially go majority Republican. It tells you that the Hispanic community is also breaking heavily red, breaking heavily to the Republican Party. And if you extrapolate that to Arizona or Texas or New Mexico or some of these other places, it's it's a stunning achievement. But the idea that the largest county in the state of Florida, Miami-Dade, for the first time perhaps in our lifetimes, might go majority Republican, that is another component of why Florida is becoming more and more red. And you just talked about other states, so I'd like to bring those states sure. into yeah. the discussion. I mean, we've got you know the possibility of uh, Pennsylvania uh, electing both a Republican senator again and a Republican governor, uh, which I hadn't done since Tom Ridge, I believe, was the last one. You've got Arizona, which 
um, they in the primary, the winners were largely at the time considered further right than was going to be right. politically viable. Right. They're uh, incredibly competitive. It looks like Carrie Lake's probably going to win the governor's race. And Blake Masters, who had been written off about a month and a half ago, right. is surging now. Yeah. You've got Nevada. Uh, and then uh, after the debates, you've got the New York governor's race uh, and uh, one other governor's race, uh, Michigan, right. uh, Whitmer and Michigan, where the Democrats are having to pour money in to kind of drag those two across the finish line. Right. It's just pretending to be... Uh, either a wave or, as some said, a wave moving into a tsunami on the red side. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I think election night, um, I think we'll know very early what we're looking at. If you watch the New Hampshire Senate race, which is the first race that they'll be looking at. Is that the Maggie got, Hassan? Yeah, okay. you've got Hassan and uh, Bulldog. Okay. And you, there was a, he was considered a, a, a MAGA 2 extreme to win candidate and now he's pulled ahead in the most recent trafalgar um um polling and so i think you know it's going to be really interesting to see if if he wins that in new hampshire it's katie bar the door they could end up at 55 or 56 which is incredible to think given that they're at 50 right now. And I just read a piece talking about the 2024 map, and it's right. actually, again, favorable to the Republicans. Very much so. The 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 thing that I'm going to be looking out for is whether or not Pennsylvania is able to call the race that night. Right. I, you know, given what happened in Pennsylvania in the 2020 cycle, given the, the court challenges, the issues they had regarding... Um, the destruction of ballots post-fact. There was a whole host of things that went on, and they're already talking about the fact that it may be so close that it takes days to know. Uh, The other race that's going to be really interesting for me is whether or not Georgia is decided or it goes to a runoff. Right. The Republicans could be at 52, heading to potentially 54. It could be 51 with a couple of undecided. Right. Uh, So that whole makeup is incredibly in flux, and it kind of changes day to day. On the House side, it's looking like the potential of a Republican pickup of anywhere from 30 to 50 seats, which would be kind of almost in line with what happened in 94 or in 2010. Uh, 2010. Two the, years yeah, after Obama. After Obama. Yeah, was so, elected, yeah. And he called that a shellacking. Yeah. So I think we have a, a Tuesday night's going to be great fun. There's a lot to watch for, so many different variables. Uh, then you have the governor's races that are really, really interesting that you referenced before. So, But to bring it back to Florida, I see DeSantis winning comfortably, which anything over three percentage points in Florida is comfortable. And I, I would say it's going to be you know in the five to eight range. And then I think uh, Senator Rubio, uh, probably maybe not quite at that level, but I still think he's going to win in the three to five range. Interesting on, on that points. race. Um, I have noticed this tendency in the past week, and I pointed this out on Twitter, that when I hear individuals introducing or talking about 
uh, Rubio's opponent, Val Demings, who is a congresswoman from Central Florida, right. they don't call her Congresswoman Demings. They call her Chief Demings. Right. It is a, it, she was a police chief. She's a law enforcement background. Right. They are trying to portray her as the antithesis of the defund the police radical left. It's an interesting political tactic, but they're completely ignoring the fact that she's a sitting congresswoman right. uh, because that may be kind of a, a, a bit of a you know a, a hurdle for of her. course I think in any strong Democratic year uh, Congresswoman Demings would be an excellent candidate she would almost be a, be a very, favorite right it'd yeah. be a very she'd be a very strong candidate I just don't think she can overcome the ineptitude of this administration and things like inflation and crime in big cities and those kinds of things that are largely largely have been brought about by either democratic spending or democratic governance. And you just put out the great segue on crime, right. uh, a terrible, heartbreaking incident at uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home while she mm-hmm. was not there, but an attacker uh, apparently broke in, uh, uh, mental health issues, yeah, attacked yeah. the Speaker's husband, who's, I mean, 82, no right. spring chicken, beat him with a hammer, uh, a tremendous uh, uh, challenge uh, health-wise. Um, uh, kind of thoughts and and you know prayers go out to the Pelosi family. Uh, there should be, and I do believe there is, no real kind of thought that any kind of political violence is ever tolerable. Um, uh, and and so it's just something where you know I've got to hope that at some point the release valve uh, hits right. and. You know, kind of tensions begin to subside in ways that uh, they just need to. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what that looks like or how that's going to come about. I mean, you had the attacker near Brett Kavanaugh's home, uh, who was going to, uh, who threatened to kill a city supreme, sitting Supreme Court justice. The baseball game, right? Right. None of these people are in their right mind. Yeah. We have very, very significant mental health issues across the country. Uh, with individuals that are largely living online or living in the shadows, and those issues are not being addressed. I hope we can get to the point where we can focus on that. But obviously, you and I agree that violence is never never the response. Um, we believe vigorously in the First Amendment. We believe vigorously in uh, our rights uh, found within uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. But violence is not a part of that. And it's... Uh, it's, it's scary where our society seems to be heading in these kind of different ways. As we move on, we're beginning to look also to, um, you know, staying here in Florida, there was a joint committee on Florida's two medical boards yep. that voted last week to draft a rule that would ban puberty blockers and other gender dysphoria treatments for minors in the state. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is something that it, it's a sad commentary that this is actually necessary right um you know uh, wherever you sit in the social um policy spectrum i think there should be a a broad understanding and acknowledgement that children should be protected from any types of 
uh, things that have life altering ramifications right. to them. Um, you know, whether it's uh, medications, whether it's healthcare treatments, whether it's something in line with gender identity, uh, our kids should be protected. And like I said, it's just kind of a sad state of affairs when. Uh, you know, our, our state agencies and our boards actually have to meet to, to codify this. Right, right. It's, the reality is children can't make those decisions. They don't know what, I mean, you're a father, I'm a father. Um, my children are, you know, a generation older than yours, but they, at the ages that they're talking about, these children don't know where they are, not just one day to the next, one hour to the next. And I think, too, with the um, increase in the the kind of omnipresence of social media, yep. it makes it more difficult uh, for children uh, to even think or consider uh, certain realities. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the fact that this has passed in Florida... As we say all the time, Florida is a model for the country. I think you're going to continue to see more and more of this in lots of red states, probably even in some purple states, uh, maybe even in some light blue states, that, that these kinds of things are going to happen. But it is a testament to the kind of world we're living in that these kinds of decisions like banning puberty blockers, even have to be made yeah, for minors. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's chat a little bit uh, about. Uh, we, we've talked about inflation a number of times. Uh, it's something that is absolutely a function of monetary policy. We flooded the market right. with trillions of dollars. Now we've got more dollars chasing fewer goods, uh, and therefore we have uh, close to double digit inflation. Uh, the Fed has been doing what they see as their role. Uh, they've gone and raised interest rates a couple of times. There's talk about another three-quarter point hike. Uh, but on the on the kind of flip side of that, there are folks saying if they go ahead and do that, they're going to trigger uh, a, a recession. Although I would claim we've had two consecutive quarters right. of negative GDP growth. We are in a recession, but that could trigger a more prolonged one. There's no doubt. We're already in a recession, even though... Uh, the mainstream media doesn't want to declare that. We are. We have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. The market is reflecting a yep. recession. I mean, we are definitely in a recession. Having said that, we're taping this the day after they did raise it, a three-quarters of a point. As you said, they're looking forward to whether or not they're going to continue to yep. raise it, another three-quarters of a point. Um it makes everything more expensive. It makes buying a house uh, more expensive, all, any and all forms of borrowing more expensive. And it's a challenge for people uh, who may not be quite as established in their careers as they think about buying a home and buying cars and those kinds of things. No doubt we're in a very, very tricky economy. Um, so, you know, assuming the Republicans take one house, I think the spending. Will go down because it, 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 at the at, at the worst you'll have a divided government, yep. so they won't be able to spend money. Um, but it is it's very much a challenge, and the Fed is a blunt instrument. The Fed is not a scalpel, and so uh, you know this economy is a the world's largest economy, and it can't just be handled by the Fed. We can't look to them for any and all things. And so it's going to be a challenge moving forward. Well, and to your point, when we think about economic activity and we had talked about gas prices, we didn't talk about diesel prices. Right. Diesel prices are over $5 a gallon. What I mean, 
if you don't have a diesel car, you might not be inclined to think about that, but every single truck carrying every single good right. to every single point of the United States uses diesel, and everything is going up. Uh, the ability of tight money to you know kind of uh, make investment decisions in the oil and gas market and all of these other things have a pronounced impact and it just goes to your point that the like you said the fed is a blunt instrument and right now they're they're discovering that they're not a scalpel they right. can't just you know make a change and all of a sudden uh, incur a soft landing and to say that somehow the fed is apolitical it's just not possible in washington dc for any bureaucratic group to be completely and totally apolitical moving on yep want to before we wrap it up one more major uh thing that that i wanted to get your thoughts on the atlantic wrote an article that said, let's declare a pandemic amnesty, from which it said, essentially, that all of those who required vaccines, all of the school closures that were closed for years and months and years and months, all of the CDC recommendations that turned out to be wrong, all of the mask mandates, essentially the author of The Atlantic is now saying, hey, we were probably wrong, but let's all be friends now and sing Kumbaya. What are your thoughts on that? I want to tear my hair out. Um, I read the article. So did I. Uh, I then promptly took my blood pressure medication. Uh, and my first, second, and even a day or two later reaction is, hell no. And here's why. Because for the greater part of two years, those same writers from the Atlantic posted article after article after article calling those who, like us, wanted to take a more nuanced look at right. this. They called us everything possible. They wanted to remove our rights as United States citizens. They wanted to curtail our abilities to travel. They wanted to take our children away from us. They wanted to close our businesses permanently. And that's not hyperbole. Everything you've said, you have the receipts to show in oh, the articles. Oh, the article titles right. and the content from the very publication that now wants to declare an amnesty for all of the sins that they committed... I think there's a road to redemption in this, but it is not one article from one left-leaning journalist who says, oh, yeah, maybe we you know, overreacted. overreacted. Right. Let's just all go back to normal. Um, no. I think this is going to require a long road of recognizing the faults that were, uh, that, that were made in people's assumptions on the left about what was going on, reconciling their ability to turn over power to government bureaucrats who exist in no way, shape, or form for nothing else other than to acquire and expand their own power, and the fact that they were so quick to destroy the reputations of so many people is why I think that this article has largely landed with fury right. among the many of us who had to endure the last sure. two years. Sure, this was supposed to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. This was, you know, all of the the hundreds of thousands of government employees across the country, nurses and doctors who lost their job, who chose not to be vac vaccinated, members of the military who uh, either were forced to be vaccinated or chose not to, the mask mandate, calling um, 
people who, as you said, wanted to take a more nuanced view of all of this, deniers, yep. linking us with somehow being Holocaust deniers, which is always the way of the left, uh, an amnesty. I don't know what the answer is, but amnesty is not the answer. 100%. 100%. And, and, and rather than a uh, few more, I think let's move on and land on some sports let's, because we need to, yeah. Let's let's turn to something a little more fun, a little more lighthearted yep. as we move into the holiday season. We need this it. is my favorite time of year, so I want to end on a, a lighthearted note. You and I are both baseball guys. You're a Yankees fan. Sadly. Uh, I'm a hopeless Cincinnati Reds fan only because they trained in Tampa during my childhood, and I used to go watch them during spring training every year. Um, but during the World Series, uh, the Houston Astros – staff, not one pitcher, but their staff threw a complete no-hitter, uh, the first no-hitter in a World Series since Don Larson's 1956 no-hitter. Perfect, game. Perfect yeah. game, which he threw completely. Is he, Do you consider it a no-hitter, Sal? No, I don't. I don't. A no-hitter is thrown by one pitcher and one pitcher alone. And in fact, I, I'm conflicted. I recognize it's the World Series, right. but you had a guy, it's the sixth inning, he's pitching a no-hitter, right. I get strategy, but you had the opportunity to have something special. Somebody gets a hit off of the kid, you pull him, and right. you go to your thing, but uh, you go to your pen. And they were up 5 nothing. Exactly. And he had thrown fewer than 100 pitches. I mean, what happened to the days of Bob Gibson throwing 140 pitches? Nolan Ryan in his 40s throwing 125 pitches. Nolan threw out the first pitch of, uh, I think it was game three or four, threw a ball faster than most people half his age could throw. I mean, the guy still got some juice in his arm. Um, I, now I, I disagree with the call to, to pull them, uh, especially up the way that they were, uh, you know, yes, it's the world series, but you know, it, it wasn't one to nothing. It was five exactly. to nothing. So somebody hits exactly. a, a solo shot. You pull the guy, you're done. Yet who do you more, want? To, who are you pulling for to win? Yet one more reason to hate the Houston Astros, uh, yeah. uh, among many right. others. Uh, I, I am pulling for the Phillies. Uh, you know, it's, right. they're, they're, they're the scrappy club. They are. You know, they are, and you got to love the Philly grit and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. My my uh, uh, conflict is that I love Dusty Baker, who's the manager of the Astros. He's managed about five different ball clubs, including my Cincinnati Reds. He's never won a World Series. Yeah. He's seventy three years old. He's Looks got, good for yeah. He's got maybe a year or two. He's a great human being. Uh, I really then, want then him why to get is a he with I the, know, Houston the Houston Astros. Astros. I know. I know, I know. Moving on, we'll wrap with this. Sure. The college playoffs yes. were revealed uh, a few days ago. Uh, they had University of Tennessee at number one, Ohio State at number two, Georgia at number three, Clemson, which really surprised me, yeah. at number four, Michigan five, Bama six, and no TCU in the top six. Your thoughts? A TCU's uh, undefeated. They I are. mean, I, yes, I get schedule strength, but um, uh, you know, at some point, I think the uh, the 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 NCAA's got to figure out how they're going to do this. We're in the midst of this massive kind of realignment. Right. Um, I was doing some reading and talking with some folks on the expansion to a twelve-team playoff, which at first I was dead set against, but 
after considering some some really nuanced viewpoints on the difference between an 8-team and a 12-team, I actually like the 12-team better because of the buys. It still makes your Saturdays in the fall more meaningful than a straight 8-team playoff. Mm, yeah. So, I, you know, I'm not for expansion, but if they're going to expand, I like them expanding to 12 teams as opposed to t- uh, to eight. You know, it's funny. Uh, I really didn't like to buy initially, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. The games will still matter exactly. in the fall. Division races, conference championships, those kinds of things will still matter if there's a buy. I just getting plus my head field. around, yeah, plus home field, getting my head around a buy in football uh, to advance. I understand bye weeks during the season, but a bye to advance, it's just a difficult thing. But I, I see where it you're is, coming from. It does take a little bit to kind of grasp uh, from the standpoint of you're, you're not used to the way you are in college basketball. But if you're if you're fighting to get in that top four, you're having a fight every that's Saturday. That's so that's true. kind of the, the thought I had, which is why I was a little bit more okay with it than, right. than an 18. Bottom line is... I think the playoff will shake out. Georgia and Tennessee are going to have to play each other. Yep. Michigan and Ohio State are going to have to play each other. Alabama, you know, could very well likely be the West Division champ. You know, the SEC will will sort itself out. The question will be what to do with TCU in the Big 12 yep. if they win out. Yeah. That's going to be you do you take a one-loss Michigan or a one-loss Bama over an undefeated TCU from the Big 12. I think the the BCS does. I wouldn't. Right. Like I I think they go. They say SEC. They take the big the the, the big power conference uh, uh, groups based solely on strength of schedule. Interesting. It'd be great. And on that note, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Spill the Tea. Thank you for listening to Spill the Tea. For more content from the James Madison Institute, follow us on social media or check out our website at jamesmadison.org.